0: Talk Radio. Daniels, on the Rainbow Soul Network, Lake Radio Network. Okay, it is Tuesday, November 29th, and it's 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. And today's topic is Government Atrocities in Your Doctor. Tonight, I'm going to review two government perpetrated atrocities and the role doctors played. Could America be in the midst of a doctor-assisted us. As always, things happen. So you're probably wondering what made me think of today's topic. Well, as many of you know, I was—I uh, had to go to a, a meeting in uh, Thailand. which when I had to get on a plane. It was a pretty long ride, so they handed out newspapers. And this is from the Financial Times Weekend Edition. Yes, the Financial Times. And I actually did a story, and the story is... A new state inquiry of state means government takes place into the disappearance of babies in the airlift of 50,000, in this case it was Jews, more than six decades ago. And so the author meets with the Yemenite families who believe their children were stolen and given away. Now You say, well, what does that got to do with doctors? That's what I said. I also said to myself, a curious thing to happen. But... I'm going to read you the relevant parts to help understand uh, what's going on here. And so it says, 90, oh, so Naomi Gant, maybe 92, but she speaks of her flight from Yemen seven decades ago with the wide-eyed urgency of a young woman recounting events that happened. Naomi married her husband, a jeweler, who's age 13. In 1949, they left Yemen because it became untenable for its ancient Jewish community, so she was Jewish in other words. The young couple uh, was expecting a wonderful new land. But because Naomi was breastfeeding, her son Yosef, who was one years old, the couple spent just one night at the camp before being fast-tracked onto a flight. And the Jews had to put their jewelry in a box before boarding, as they were told, get this, it might weigh the plane down. Hmm. Of course, she never saw her silver necklace or bracelets again. Anyway, as Naomi reached the tarmac at the bottom of the stairs, a waiting nurse, there we go, nurse, the medical profession, licensed agent of the government, told her she needed to take the baby. Naomi protested, but the nurse insisted, saying the baby was ill and needed tests. That was the last she saw of her son. Later, the nurse came to their tent and told them that Yosef had been taken to another transit camp. Two months later, Naomi and her husband were told the baby had died. There was no death certificate and no grave. So, this is interesting, uh, that something like this, basically robbing a generation of their children, is something that was perpetrated by nurses and the medical profession. And I think this is something that we can see really as a recurring theme. And so it goes on to say, Yemenites or other Jews from the Middle East reported babies missing from hospital after sudden or suspicious death in the tumultuous years. In a handful of the cases it has been proven through DNA tests or paper trials that their children were taken from hospitals or refugee camps and given to other childless Jews. So in other words this is one group of Jews stealing the babies for another group of Jews. Okay. But the point is you have there are two different governments involved, but you have a government literally stealing a generation of children. And so, goes to say, suspicions first stirred on a widespread scale in the sixties, when many parents began to receive military draft notices for their deceased children in the mail. This suggested that the government KNEW THE CHILDREN WERE ALIVE. AND SO, HOWEVER, THE COMMITTEE, SO IT'S DETERMINED NOW THAT THESE CHILDREN WERE STOLEN, THERE CAN BE NO DOUBT. HOWEVER, THE COMMITTEE ORDERED THE FILES AND THE INQUIRY SEALED UNTIL 2071. THAT MEANS WHEN EVERYONE WHO EITHER WAS A VICTIM OF IT OR DID IT WOULD BE DEAD, RIGHT? BECAUSE THIS HAPPENED IN 1930. SO YOU SAY, WELL, LET'S JUST SEAL THE RECORDS FOR 140 YEARS LATER. AND FINALLY, so so they're searching for the truth and want to know what happened. And I think the time has come to know and to make justice and order here. Now, this is important that all the government is offering as a possibility here is just to have people know where their children are or if they're still alive. And so this uh, person in charge of this uh, disclosure project, I guess you could call it, was himself... Uh, spirited away. And so he says, the issue of these children is an open wound that continues to bleed among the families who do not know what happened to their babies or children. And shortly after uh, his appointment, this guy looking into it, uh, he told the TV interviewer that hundreds of children had indeed deliberately been kidnapped in Israel's early years, which of course contradicted the previous committee's findings. So now the establishment took place and so now the argument changes, but we don't know if it was the establishment knew about it or not or if it was a policy. And so he said, because I'm part of this group, I heard these stories from day one as a young kid. So I know that it's not a conspiracy theory or some type of paranoia. These things really happened. And kids were taken, were probably given to families that didn't have kids, and the parents were lied to. And the uh, past, now they're worried about the uh, voice doubts about the notion of conspiracy or dismiss the allegations entirely. So now we have the conspiracy theorists. So people who say, hey, my babies are stolen, are being told, you know, you just imagined it. So while of Israeli officials, too, have historically dismissed claims of the widespread theft of these babies, they are now acknowledging that something appears to have happened and possibly with some institutional support. Now it's important to understand that nurses, hospitals, and doctors, when they are licensed or employed by the government are essentially under government control. And so in this case what happened was their this family that had a baby was told, oh, we're going to put you on a plane quickly to get you out of here. It was a refugee-type situation. What they didn't know was they had been identified as having a baby that could be stolen and given to another family. And so, of course, they landed and the baby was stolen, of course, by a nurse who offered to do testing. So, and here is another case of how this happened. So Rachel, who arrived in 1949, was housed with her family in a metal metal shack near the city of Netnanya. She says the Yemenites, working for the Jewish agency, Reed government, persuaded them to put her brother, Sadia, less than two years old, in a children's home. Her mother visited the boy to breastfeed, arriving one day to the news that her son had died. You will never find him, she was told. So for months afterwards, she used to dream of her son knocking on the door. And so her husband wrote to the government to try to find the baby, Rachel says he was told the boy had left the country. So of course, how could he leave the country if indeed he was dead? Now I use the word uh, Jews or Jewish or Israeli because that's what the newspaper says, but but again, I want to emphasize this is one set of Jews that uh, were evacuated and had all their children stolen by another set of Jews. So this is not exactly a uh, you know one group versus another two different racial groups or anything like that. The point here is not so much that people are Jewish or not Jewish or Israel or not Israel, but that you have a situation where this uh, atrocity, basically, um, stealing of people's children, lying to them, telling them that they were dead. So the government did this, but the henchmen, the tools, were the doctors. The medical community that said yes the baby's dead, when actually the baby wasn't, the medical community just said, oh, give us your baby, hand me this baby, uh, don't worry, I'll help you. And um, the thing is, so Israel's not alone in facing 20th century scandals involving the coerced, that means forced, transfer of children. In Australia, Canada, and indigenous Indigenous children were taken and placed with white families in a form of social engineering. In Switzerland, children were trafficked for farm work in Argentina. Children of leftists were killed by the junta in the 70s or 80s, and replaced with families close to the rightist regime. Now, of course, what's not mentioned here is the whole case of children being abducted into, you know, the Lolita Express. So it's common to separate children from their parents in the early kibbutz collective farms. And so, what we have here going on is obviously something that you take a look at, and you say, Oh my God, this is terrible. This is objectionable. Thank God it's not happening in America. But in America, what we have is women have been conditioned to put their children in something called daycare. And about 30 years ago, daycare, if you want to call it that, could be just, you know, leaving the child with. Uh, a relative or with friends. But now, if you take care of a certain number of children, even if they're all family members or extended family, you need to be a state-certified daycare. What does that mean? It means you have to do what the state, the government tells you what to do, not what the parents tell you to do. And so we have then a separation of parents from their children, but on a voluntary basis. Of course, this opens up a lot of things that can happen in terms of, you know, kids turning up missing. Uh, But I digress. And so now they say, well, if babies were indeed taken possibly for money and with the aid of religious or medical officials, this would be a betrayal of these principles on a grand scale. And all of the Holocaust narrative of Israel is now, of course, uh, a little shaky. This is uh, the editorial they're saying. But the point here is you have a, a society that uh, professes to have high moral um, character and standards, but there's this practice of taking babies, possibly for money, and with the aid of medical officials. And if, if, if Israel admits this crime, then it would lose its moral legitimacy. Which, of course, uh, you know, I guess worse things could happen. But the point here, I think, that's really important, is how it was necessary and important to have the cooperation of these uh, medical personnel, nurse, doctors, and presumably hospitals. And so then we go on to say it's a very problematic story that's considered a crime against humanity, which the UN calls genocide, taking children from one family and giving them to another. And said, so, however, many stories in which parents suspect medical officials of involvement in their child's disappearance continue to circulate. And this um, couple, Arman Chaim and Reed Rivetta, say they are convinced their second daughter was stolen. And here's that story. When their daughter, Elana, was 11 months old, I want you to just think of similar stories in the United States that we are hearing about, she was hospitalized with a chest infection. He, uh, the husband rushed home from his military service to see his daughter and was relieved that she was well enough to cry out, Father, Father. But the next day, when the young couple returned to hospital, they were told their daughter had died. The distra- parents were given no death certificate and the hospital uh, rabbi, that would be a minister, a priest, religious figure, denied them the chance to see Alana's grave or to sit Shiva, which is a, a observance. And so years later, when stories began to circulate about stolen children, they went in search of a paper trail. And about five years after her death, the same mother took another daughter to the hospital where she alleges she was approached by a female doctor who said, please give me the girl. Mother took her daughter and ran. She says it's disgusting what they did to kidnap kids, she said. These were people coming to a place where they would get help, they're supposed to be taken care of, we trusted them, and they betrayed us. And so they say among these one Israeli group, it's hard to find a family that does not have a story of a missing relative. And so, again, now we see the hospital, we have a situation where the hospital is involved as well. And so yet there are hundreds of stories of parents who were told their babies died suddenly but were never given a death certificate or shown a body. What has not been proven is an organized conspiracy to traffic these missing children. Now, that you even have to prove a conspiracy to traffic missing children to me is absurd. Uh, The point is, it's pretty obvious and straightforward, that these children are being trafficked and abducted with the uh, help and cooperation of nurses, doctors, and hospitals. And I think this is something that... In the United States, what we see is people will take their children to the hospital, thinking, "Oh, uh, my child's sick." The hospital will examine the child and say, "Oh, we, we want to give this kid chemotherapy just in case." Even in my chat room, uh, you know, someone entered, made an entry saying, "Hey, you know, my uh, my cousin or my nephew uh, was diagnosed with bone cancer, and really all I had was shin splints." And so the question then is, at what point Does do the parents lose control? And if the parents have lost control, then who is in control? In this case, what we're seeing here is, is uh, they refer to this as atrocities, but these children literally being stolen from their parents. And whether a child is stolen by way of being coerced into chemotherapy or being coerced into other... Uh, dangerous medical interventions is nonetheless the child being abducted or stolen from the parents and the thing here, which is rather striking, is that this this abduction, this kidnapping is mediated by the healthcare system. And so, So here we have the advent of DNA testing and the internet has begun to link some missing children with parents who were told they were dead, or in some cases has exposed telling mismatches. And this is, uh, this is interesting. In 1996, a plot was exhumed of a sample of 10 graves of children whose parents were told they had died in the hospital. In 8 out of 10 of the cases, no DNA match was found. In other words, in eight out of ten of these cases where the parents were told your children were dead, uh, there's no evidence that the child was actually dead. And so there's another case here, and this one's very interesting. One day, when Grandbaum was thirty eight, a colleague said to his wife, What do you think you have at home? Your husband's not Polish. He's adopted. <laughs> And so Greenbaum's wife said to him, go find out more. And he wrote the service, uh, the Child Services in Jerusalem-based agency that handles adoptions. So with his ID number, um, soon afterwards a letter arrived that confirmed he was not his parent's biological son. So, of course, this had always been kept from him. So he was one of the children who was disappeared and who was stolen. He said, it's like getting a five-pound hammer on your head. And a year later, he managed to locate his birth mother. And she said that when she gave birth prematurely as a 19-year-old immigrant, the hospital told her her son had died. Of course, there was no burial. And um, he found a, a bill indicating that he was sold. And his parents, that he finally um, ended up raising him, actually paid for him. So this is evidence that these babies were actually being sold. So some people said at the time, it's no big deal if we take one child and give it to another or to Holocaust survivors. It's a good deed. And um, so now they admit these babies were stolen, but that it's not official. And people are thinking, are upset and they want to uh, bring the hospital um, to justice. Good luck with that. He says, it's not about punishment. It's about giving the family some kind of honest and fair capability to see material gathered over the years and whether they can find some peace in these documents. So you have people... <coughs> so the point here is you have a major crime being committed. It's tough to grasp if, you, if you're not a parent. But to actually have your child uh, take your child to the doctor and then be told your child died mysteriously, no grave, no body, and that's it. You're done. No kid. Uh, It's pretty devastating. And to have it happen on a wide scale like this, um, approximately 50,000, a group of of 50,000 individuals were resettled, and this is what happened to several thousand of their babies were just basically taken like this. But the point here is it's only because of the trust these people had in the medical system, in the nurses, in the doctors, in the hospitals, that this was able to be done. And the one lady when she brought her sick daughter to the hospital, she realized, hey wait, <laughs> this doctor's asking me to turn my child over, and she ran out the hospital. And of course that child lived and did very nicely. But this is what we see happening um, in the United States. And this is something that can be perceived as being subtle because of a lot of things that we take for granted. We take for granted um, sending our children to school or to daycare. But once they enter, then they can receive any and all types of medical interventions and in many cases actually become abducted. Uh, you know, it's, it's well known that in the United States when you send your child to school, say junior high, uh, and if they hand out a questionnaire, the, are you depressed questionnaire, and your child answers the questions incorrectly, uh, that child may never come home. The child uh, may be admitted to a facility held against their will and even receive medications against their will. And these are all things mediated, again, by government institutions. The government institution, the first one would be the school, the second one would be the licensed individual who evaluated the form, who made the decision to um, abduct or incarcerate the child, and finally, of course, the medical facility itself. So we have this going on in the United States, actually, in plain view. I'd like to talk about another uh, well-known event. Now, so, so this event, to be clear, is there were uh, Jews who were resettled in Israel as a result of the Holocaust. This is my understanding. And many of them either did not have children or they wanted to start a family or they wanted to populate Israel. And so then another set of Jews from Yemen um, had their children abducted and given to Uh, the first set of Jews. Now, uh, whether people are Jewish or not, or Israel or not, it's not the point. But the point is, when you have the medical system under the total and complete control of the government, it becomes a tool of tyranny. And this is what we see happening here. And the big deal is when you can decide to declare... Uh, someone dead and abduct them and and in many cases even sell these children, uh, it's a bad scene and it's difficult for for citizens who view uh, doctors and uh, hospitals and nurses as a source of solace and assistance. Let's take a look at our famous event, which is the uh, the Holocaust. So, some people dispute whether it occurred or not occurred, but we can agree there was a place called Germany. We can agree that there were doctors there. So, let's take a look at doctors in Germany. And so, uh, year, Germany emerged from THE First World War, defeated, impoverished, and demoralized. And in 1920. A psychiatrist published a book titled, The Granting of Permission for the Destruction of Worthless Life, Its Extent and Form. And they argued that in certain cases, it was legally justified to kill those suffering from incurable and crippling handicaps and industries, uh, or injuries. To describe people suffering from various forms of psychiatric disturbance, brain damage, and retardation. And what we have going on in the United States now is we've convinced women that it's okay to constantly subject their fetuses. These are women who want to have babies. We're not talking about women who choose abortions. We'll just uh, count that as uh, a choice that was made. But if a woman is pregnant and she wants to have a healthy baby, women have been convinced um, that it's okay to constantly examine this fetus and to uh, destroy the baby if the doctor suggests the baby is brain damaged or retarded, as in um, Down syndrome or trisomy 21. And so the problem with this is uh, that mental retardation afflicts about 16% of the population. And even if we could identify absolutely all of the mentally retarded fetuses, just to, just to say we could, our methods are such that for every one retarded fetus that's identified, nine normal fetuses are incorrectly identified, and the woman is advised to abort them. So then, if we have 16% of babies we know are mentally retarded, we'd have to abort every last fetus in order to accurately make sure not a single retarded fetus was born. And so this immediately tells you this is an impractical goal because what would happen, of course, is you would just wipe out the population. You would have a 100% pregnancy termination rate. And so here they say, by the early 1930s, a propaganda barrage. This is important, a propaganda barrage. That means inaccurate information provided by the government was launched against traditional compassionate 19th century attitudes. and In the United States, we used to have the traditional compassionate, uh, actually even 20th century, I would say as late as 1950-ish. Women would say, you know what, I'm pregnant. If this baby is retarded, if this baby is deformed, then it is my duty, it's my responsibility as a mother to raise this baby and do the best I can. Now, what did that attitude get us? The attitude basically got the United States baby boom of the 1950s and 60s where ladies said, you know what, Uh, I'm pregnant, I'm going to have this baby and be a good mother, that's it. However, once women were propagandized into believing that medicine could really pick and choose, could tell them if that baby in their belly was really healthy, then we have a situation where women who sincerely want to be mothers are um, aborting a lot of healthy babies. And so what they, they did then is, again, more propaganda, um, so a widely respected and widely read platform for medical education and professional policies in Germany declared, on uh, its title page, that the medical profession had unselfishly devoted services and resources to the goal of protecting the German nation from biogenetic degeneration. And this is exactly what has happened in the United States, and this is a parallel. Women who get pregnant actually feel it's their possibility to have a genetically perfect baby. And it's their responsibility to have these genetic tests and actually get a pregnancy termination if these genetic tests show that their baby is not perfect. Unfortunately, what the ladies are not told is that these tests are not perfect. And so we then go to uh, purifying the gene pool, uh, eugenics platform, Professor Dr. Ernest Rudin. And the problem, again, is in America, this philosophy has been so ingrained into women if they don't even realize that they're practicing eugenics against their own babies. And then they talk about the slippery slope. And here is exactly where we are. We're at the slippery slope. And so in this article they talk about the Holocaust. They're talking about adult euthanasia began in September 1939 when an organization um, headed up by a doctor Aim to create 70,000 beds for war casualties and ethnic German repatriates. So all state institutions were required to report on patients who had been ill for five years or more and were unable to work by filling out questionnaires. And again, this starts very harmlessly by filling out questionnaires. And that's exactly what I pointed out before. You simply have the kids fill out a questionnaire in school. And say, oh, my God, you're depressed. We need to abduct you. Or, even worse, you go to your doctor's office, you fill out a questionnaire, it becomes part of electronic medical records and share it with, well, let's just say the proper authorities. And in this case, uh, chosen patients were gassed and incinerated, and false death certificates were issued with diagnoses appropriate for age and previous symptoms, and payment for treatment and burial was collected from surviving relatives. And the program, of course, was stopped in 1941, when the necessary number of beds had been created. Now, again, this is a system created by the government, carried out by the hospitals and by hospital staff and personnel. And this is what we've got going on in the United States. We've got a situation where we're now in the slippery slope, where healthy children, healthy fetuses, are being diagnosed as having defects. Mothers unwittingly are aborting these babies, babies that they they want to have. This is why they're going through prenatal care in the first place. So um, the United States, we're starting at the uh, first, the front end of life, not the back end, by first aborting as many babies as possible. First, you encourage women to abort babies by convincing them that they financially cannot afford a child, that they just cannot afford a child. And once you convince women of that and that that's a reasonable reason for abortion, then, of course you you inflate the cost of the baby, right by creating a fifteen thousand dollars prenatal birth experience when she could probably have this baby for two hundred and fifty dollars to stay home and then spend money to maybe change the sheets uh, and clean up the mess. And uh, then you take you uh, get this woman to believe that she has to spend two hundred thousand dollars per child for college, and you know pretty pretty soon, if you do that and you feed the kid in between, it's totally unaffordable. But um, if you at the same time devalue motherhood, then you've got a situation um, culturally where you set the stage basically for a very slippery slope where you begin to exterminate basically healthy children. And what happens then if these children are born alive? Why? Then you have vaccination. And so. Uh, Then you have medical involvement here. Now, this is the Nazis, what they did, and I'm just going to mention what is going on now in America. So throughout this process, doctors were involved in the earliest stages in reporting, and our corresponding uh, mechanism in the United States is uh, electronic medical records and the immunization card. In reporting, selection, authorization, execution, certification, and research. And again, in the United States, we have the exact same going. Same going. We have the doctors, and uh, they're reporting. Every pregnancy is pretty much reported. Uh, selecting, we do the test, select which babies are imperfect. Authorization, they authorize the termination of this life. Execute, they terminate the life, they certify it, and then, of course, you complete the cycle with, of course, more research. And a lot of these babies that are aborted, uh, the amniotic fluid is used, recycled and sold, uh, the umbilical cord is sold. All these things, this whole secondary market in these um, bits and parts and pieces. And this is the clencher here. Doctors were not ordered, but rather empowered to participate. And this is what I saw in medical school. So here I was in medical school, and they're teaching me stuff, teaching me stuff, teaching me stuff. And the I said, wait, wait, wait. At some point in your career, you may be called upon by the government. You are obligated to cooperate with the government, and you will do it because you care. And there will be epidemics. And you, as a doctor, will be in charge of coordinating the government response. And so uh, so what happened in medical school then is I wasn't ordered, but I was empowered to participate. I always felt that it would be a great thing for me to participate. And if you look at... Uh, what was attempted with Ebola, as a doctor, uh, doctors were asked to participate in 21-day quarantines, incarcerations without due process, without really even evidence that the person uh, was a threat to himself or anyone else. And so uh, Leo Alexander, a psychiatrist with the Office of Chief of Counsel at Nuremberg describes the process. The beginnings at first were merely a subtle shift in emphasis in the basic attitude of the physician. And this is exactly what we see. So when I first entered medical school in 1979, it was doctor-patient. I, the doctor, would help you, the patient, and to the best of my ability, give you the best possible outcome. And then there was a shift. It started with the attitude basic in the euthanasia movement, that there is such a thing as a life that worthy to be lived. And that was the, the Nazi version. The um, U.S. Western version is it started with the attitude of the public good. All of a sudden, when you have a patient in front of you, it was not ethical or reasonable to continue to consider what is good for this patient right now. No, 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 no. You have to consider... What is good for the country? What is good for society? And this totally puts the patient in front of you, puts their individual interests in the back seat, It's not throwing it totally out the window. This attitude in its early stages concerned itself merely with the severely and chronically sick. And again, this is the same thing in medicine. Um, in medical school, this was introduced when it came to people who were in the intensive care unit, people who were in the cardiac care unit, people who were being considered for transplant. And then it gradually expanded, 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 and gradually the sphere of those to be included in this category, category of people whose care was to be dictated not by their particular personal interest but by the public good, that category expanded, expanded, expanded. And now, in 2016, this category is enlarged to encompass pretty much everybody. Um, and this is what the standard of care is all about. So now a doctor is obligated to follow a guideline that's optimized for the public good, whoever the public is, using targets set by... The government. And so in Nazi Germany, this took the shape of encompassing socially unproductive, ideologically unwanted, racially unwanted, and finally all non Germans. In the United States, the socially unproductive would be, of course, children. And so there's a major war on children, and we can see this with the vaccination movement with the uh, putting the children on antidepressants that cause them to commit suicide and homicide. And so we can see these socially unproductive individuals, basically uh, age 17 or 18 on down, uh, it, their health is just being absolutely devastated. And the standard of care for them is something that's good for uh, social objectives, but not for them individually. And the ideologically unwanted, Uh, not quite sure who that would be, but, you know, anyone who has uh, any kind of thought or mental activity. The racially unwanted, that could be anybody. Um, You know, there's so many hate movements in the United States, uh, and you're probably thinking of, oh, Ku Klux Klan. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about politically. I mean, there's actually talk about, you know, exterminating white people, exterminating black people. I mean, you name the racial group, there's a faction for its extermination. It's it's outrageous. So what's happening, though, in medicine is very interesting, is we now have the doctors disproportionately uh, immigrants providing lethal care disproportionately to uh, American-born individuals. So we'll see how that works out. Now the War Crimes Tribunal reported that part of the medical profession cooperated consciously and even willingly with the mass killing of sick Germans. Now, this is important uh, when you transfer the comparison in the United States. Um when you say sick Germans, let's just say in America you might say people in intensive care unit. The kill rate in the intensive care unit is uh, 15.6%. That's a pretty high kill rate, Uh, and that's over a uh, 5- to 10-day period. That's a very high kill rate. Most wars don't kill that many people. Yet many doctors working in the intensive care unit willingly adhere to the standard of care, which produces these results. How do we know this? We know this because the number of people in the intensive care unit triple at a time. When the population of sick people did not triple, yet the kill rate remained the same. So, so the, the death rate of these people in the intensive care unit is from the intensiveness of their care. And so, the doctors are willingly participating in this as to deal with the standard of care. And among their numbers are some of the leading academics and scientists of the day. And we find that in the United States today, uh, you know, distinguished professors um, and ethicists. Um, at the NYU School, uh, distinguished researchers at, at Harvard and other Ivy League institutions are you know, very much on board with all this. And looking back, so they are going to look back. It's easy to distance ourselves from the Holocaust and the doctors who were involved. However, images of doctors engaged in lethal experiments in prison camps don't fit the historical facts. So the whole process was orchestrated through the collaboration of internationally respected doctors and the government. And so this is what we have going on in the United States. This is not a bunch of butchers engaged in deadly experiments in prison camps. No, this is an FDA approving drugs to be released that are that have not been proven to be safe, and they're just being given to the population. And you can refer to that as an experiment. And these are not. Um, SS butchers. These are these are doctors who are, are certified and licensed. And this is not in prison camps, but this is happening in hospitals and in doctors' offices. Furthermore, the thinking that laid the foundation was well-entrenched throughout the Western world at the time. That would be in the United States. The International Eugenics Congress met not in Berlin, but in New York. The United States had itself sterilized 30,000 mentally ill, and criminally insane people before the war. And within Europe, Denmark had beaten Germany to the operating table by four years. Lessons of history should alert us to similar trends in our own society. And so what features can we identify? This is important. Deja Vu, like, yeah, we've been there. First, propaganda campaign for prominence. And uh, films, such as The Inheritance, uh, degrade and stigmatize handicapped patients. And what we have going on in the United States is we have propaganda campaigns, propaganda campaigns in favor of immunizations, um, propaganda campaigns in favor of prenatal care, propaganda campaigns for people to buy insurance to be put into nursing homes, propaganda campaigns that Medicare benefits are useful and helpful. When the Inspector General of Medicare uh, issued a report that Medicare having Medicare created 180,000 excess deaths among the elderly every year because of care received in the Medicare program. So to say Medicare is safe, helpful, or beneficial, of course, is propaganda. And again, we have a continuation of the propaganda campaign saying, hey, we should create insurance for everybody in the country just like the Medicare program. And so instead of the government overseeing the extermination of 180,000 patients a year, why, it would oversee the extermination of 2 million uh, citizens a year. And so um, the euthanasia, the merciful release uh, depicting a woman with multiple sclerosis being killed on request by her husband, uh, while soft music plays in the next room. The use of euphemisms distorts the facts and adds a veneer of respectability to the proceedings. And this is important, especially with, like, autism. You say, oh, this kid's autistic. Autistic? The kid's not autistic. The kid has been damaged. The kid has been poisoned. This is attempted murder that took place. So, you know, we need to, I think, dispense with euphemisms. And when you get rid of euphemisms, uh, it also removes the veneer of respectability to the proceedings. And, and I think it helps in this case, parents and regular citizens say, wait, am I really, do I want to be a part of this? And um, the charitable transport company to sick transported adult patients to killing centers. We well, you can think of this as the ambulances taking people to hospitals. Um, in Philadelphia, when they uh, investigated gunshot injuries because they had high death rate from gunshot injuries, they found the death rate increased by 18% if the person was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. In other words, the intervention that happened in the ambulance was actually deadly. And to kill 18% of people in the course of a one-hour ride, that's pretty darn deadly. I mean, it's tough to reach that level of lethality. And in obsession session with cost-benefit analysis, was a third feature. So school children were given mathematics problems balancing the cost of housing units for young couples against the cost of looking after the crippled THE CRIMINAL AND THE INSANE. NOW, THIS IS SOMETHING that was, re- THAT WAS INTRODUCED IN MEDICAL SCHOOL, IS THAT THERE'S A COST-BENEFIT ANALYSIS. AND ACTUAL NUMBERS WERE NEVER PUT TO THIS. THEY so JUST LOOK AT A PATIENT AND SAY, "Ah, eh, THE COST-BENEFIT ANALYSIS IS WE SHOULD LET THIS PERSON DIE. AND SO THE IDEA IS THAT YOU LOOK AT A COST-BENEFIT ANALYSIS, NOT THE BENEFIT ANALYSIS. AND IF YOU LOOK AT JUST THE BENEFIT ANALYSIS, A LOT OF THINGS IN MEDICINE YOU JUST WOULDN'T DO, BECAUSE THERE'S REALLY NO benefit. But if you look at the cost-benefit analysis, then you say, oh, this is affordable. We can find an insurance company to pay for it. So the cost-benefit analysis works. And so um, no one ever talks about what the patient wants. And so this cost-benefit analysis is done in a vacuum with the cost in terms of how much money the medical system can get and I should say the cost in terms of how much the government might pay, and uh, you know the benefit to the hospital, to the institution, to the doctor, and so the benefit often to the patient is so small that it's not even measurable. And so the conclusion here then is, uh, in this case, it's, it says the Nazi Holocaust, but but government programs to compromise its citizens often arise from small beginnings. And progression initially requires only four factors, favorable public opinion, which YouTube propaganda handles that, a handful of willing physicians, and really you only need a handful because you get them to sign the papers and the rules that the other physicians have to abide by. And economic pressure and in the United States, really it's economic incentive. And so the pressure actually is that doctors, hospitals, clinics, don't get reimbursed unless there's a certain um, immunization rate that happens. So the government exerts its economic pressure. And finally, no prosecution for those involved. This is very, very important. No one's going to jail um, over this autism epidemic. Nobody went to jail, even though the Inspector General found 180,000 Americans were killed as a result of their Medicare therapy. Not a single person went to jail. Not a single hospital. WAS DENIED MEDICARE uh, PARTICIPATION. AND SO THIS IS VERY, VERY IMPORTANT THAT THERE NOT BE ANY PROSECUTION FOR THE uh, PEOPLE INVOLVED. OF COURSE, THE main INGREDIENTS, OF COURSE, WAS A uh, SOCIAL POLICY. AND SO THIS IS WHAT'S GOING ON IN THE UNITED STATES NOW. NOW IN THIS EVALUATION, THEY SAID YOU NEED A WAR, BUT YOU DON'T NEED A WAR. WELL, MAYBE YOU HAVE A WAR IN THE UNITED STATES, IT'S A WAR ON TERROR. but. The, this system that's in place here is uh, one that will result, or is resulting, really, in the death of many Americans. Uh, my estimate is 880,000. Um, there are estimates as high as 1 million. If you look at the statistical fact, which is that people in America who are subjected to medical care uh, have a life expectancy of about 76 years of age, people who do not receive medical care or receive less medical care live to be uh, about 85 years old, that's a lot of years. And so if you realize that the life expectancy is actually decreased by at least seven years, if not more, then the involvement of the medical system in death would have to be uh, as high as 50% of all those dead. In other words, higher than 1.2 million a year. And so this article uh, says there's many similarities between Germany in the 30s and Western medicine today should give cause for alarm. The growing acceptance and practice of euthanasia in, this article says, Australia, United States, and Europe ring familiar bells. All run counter to post war ethical declarations adopted by the World Medical Association. This, coupled with growing health propaganda, euphemisms, Obsession with cost-benefit analysis, computerized knowledge. And again, this computerized knowledge is the standard of care, where each doctor does the same thing for every patient, whether it's appropriate or not. And developing an intimacy between the medical profession and the government leaves doctors no room for complacency. And I would say it leaves patients no room for complacency. And so what's the answer for a person to do? The person to do, the thing to do is to uh, fail, to just, uh, as Nancy Reagan would say, just say no to drugs. (laughs) Just say no to drugs. Uh, You just simply have to uh, gather your uh, courage. And turn away. If you have health insurance, drop it. I know a lot of people say, oh, I can't do that, I can't do it, oh my gosh. And I asked them, what was the last thing you went to the doctor? Oh, I went to the doctor because of this and I thought it was that and they did all these tests It turned out to be nothing. Oh, I'm so glad they were there. And I said, well, wait a minute. So you you went to the hospital. It only cost $10,000. But thank God you've been paying your health insurance premiums over the past year several years and you have actually you, you paid in twenty thousand dollars and so had you stayed home you wouldn't have been any worse off well yeah and so I would challenge people to take a look at the last time at their last medical encounter and what exactly was the benefit to them by how much did it extend their life and so uh, unfortunately most people uh, will only refuse to see a doctor if they don't have enough money. And I would say pretend you don't have enough money. Okay. Here we go. Dr. Daniels, I know you estimate 880,000 medical deaths per year, but others claim a million. Yeah. Well, you know, when I got up to 880,000, it was so depressing. <laughs> I know you guys, oh, Dr. Daniels, you're so upbeat. You are such a great, you know, whatever. Uh but after a while, you count these numbers. You're like, oh, my God, these are dead people. What are we going to do? Okay, so what do we do here? Now, so this person says, hi, Dr. Dan. My husband has a high fever and has been coughing for the past two days. Just a dry cough, no sore throat, but he's not mentally alert. Hmm. Some aches and pains and heaviness in the head. I've been giving him some honey and lime water to drink and also began living some Vicks on his chest and neck. He doesn't feel much improvement. Okay, you need to fill the tub with some cold water and put him in it. That will bring, at least will bring the fever down. What should I do to help him feel better quickly? Yeah. I would put him in a tub with the coldest water that's comfortable, which might be room temperature water. And then as he's in the tub, add more and more cool water and splash it over. Him. So that's going to bring the fever down pretty quick. Now, the next thing you have to do is you have to tell him that's this going to be a little bit here leap of face, uh, you know, really give them a quarter cup of castor oil and pretty close to a teaspoon of turpentine. Mix it up and tell them just uh, down, the, down the hatch, just drink, drink, drink. <laughs> okay. So she uh, tried honey and lime with water. That sounds like lemonade to me. So that might not be that helpful. Unfortunately, he's not been very open-minded with taking turpentine at this point, and he stopped the vitality capital because he said he doesn't want to become dependent on it. Please help. Okay, so uh, I think you just have to sit patiently with them, mix the turpentine and castor oil, sit patiently, get him in the tub, cool him down, and, um, you know, let him know he can drink it whenever he's ready. Uh, that's what I would do. Dr. yes. I started sprouting mung beans so I can avoid buying vegetables. Good, good, good. Good on you. But should I avoid sprouted beans as well as unsprouted beans while following the diet and the candida protocol? Okay, sprouted beans are not beans. Uh, okay, so what, when I was sprouting, and I'm not a sprout expert, so I'm going to tell you something that no sprout expert is going to tell you. And they're going to tell me I'm wrong, but that's okay. So mung beans especially. So what you do is you follow your sprout instructions, and you see a sprout. Keep rinsing the beans for an additional day. What you're going to see is that sprout's going to get longer, and it's going to open up, and you're going to see a root. Put the sprout in the window for 30 minutes. It will turn green. You now have a green vegetable. And you can get scissors and just cut off the green stuff on the top, and those are your vegetables. That's your salad. And so yes, sprouted beans are are fine. Or I should say sprouts. Uh seeds awful sprout too, by the way. Okay, let's see. That's <laughs> it, <a> Dr. Daniels. <laughs> Knowing what I know now, I would never even consider having a kid in the United States. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. I wonder what country provides the least medical intervention and the least forced state education, but still provide a first world lifestyle, healthy food to eat and grow, and easy access to the Internet. Sounds like the place to be an expat and move to. Well, definitely Panama. Now, what you're overlooking here is every country has two policies, one for its citizens and one for its tourists. And so if you're not a citizen of a country, they do not generally interfere with um, your lifestyle or your medical decisions or your education of your children. So, for example, a uh, person moving to just almost any country actually in the world would have total freedom in terms of health and education of their child just because they're not a citizen there. And, and many um, countries, Panama, for example, have six-month tourist visas. So literally you could be a perpetual tourist and you'd never have this concerns. All right, we are done And that is it. And, of course, think happens. I'm sorry we didn't get to all the questions uh, today. But we'll see you on Sunday and again next Tuesday. And visit VitalityCastles.com and get your free report to Candida Cleaners.